with procedures or SOPs, my first and foremost suggestion is use your existing system. If you're using Google Drive, put the SOPs in Google Drive. If you're using a knowledge management system or a wiki, put them there. If you even if you if you're a Slack-based team, put them in Slack. You know, have have the reference where people already live, where they're already already going and looking for information. Second thing is keep them simple, keep them short, and keep them at the lowest possible number. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 140 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. My guest today is Andrew Venture, the founder of Taitua Fractional COO Services. Andrew has over 20 years of experience working with distributed teams of all sizes from startups to large multinational corporations. And during this episode, Andrew and I discussed the best strategies that you can use to make remote work actually work for your distributed team. We got really deep in the weeds with this one. So I think this is an episode that many of you guys, especially those of you running remote teams, just building remote teams or looking at new ideas of how to improve the communication and productivity of your remote teams will find very, very interesting and helpful. But before we jump into the interview, make sure that you're subscribed to my weekly newsletter, Remote Insider. Every Monday morning, I send out a brief but informative email with all the top news from the digital nomad world so you never get left out. From upcoming conferences and new digital nomad visas to technology breakthroughs and the newest developments in remote work, this is the easiest way to become a remote insider. It's completely free and you can sign up at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Andrew Venture. All right, Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Uh, I am super excited that we were able to make this happen. This is a classic uh, remote world interview. I'm in Mexico. You're on the other side of the world in New Zealand. Uh, we were saying you're in the future. So if you have any sort of stock tips for me or for any of the listeners, uh, that would be awesome. But thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, I'm super stoked to have you here. Thanks, Mitsuko. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I'll let you know during the call, if I find any hot stock tips from the future, I will uh, keep you posted. <laughs> Perfect, man. Well, you and I met uh, a few months ago in Mexico City at a conference, and uh, we immediately got to talking because we have, I wouldn't say necessarily a similar background, but we have a relatively similar skill set. So it was really fun to talk with you. And I wanted to have you on the podcast because you have a lot of experience running remote teams, running distributed teams. You you have 20 years experience in this that you've been working as a product manager. So I'm really excited to hear what sort of tips you have, uh, what sort of experiences you've had. But first, before we do that, tell me a little bit about how you ended up in this. Like I said, you have a lot of corporate experience doing this sort of stuff, but what happened that you decided, I'm going to walk away from this normal world stuff and instead I'm going to work remotely. I'm going to build teams online. Like, like why did this happen? What inspired that for you? That's a, that's a great question, Mitko. So yes, in the corporate world, I'd, I'd worked in three different countries, I think already two countries, I should say, in, in three different cities. Essentially, my last 
corporate job, and this is now almost 10 years ago, I was working in an office and I had a team of 20 direct reports, um, 10 in my office and 10 across the country in Australia. And I was running a project as well. In project, we had 60 people, five time zones in three different countries that we were employing just for that project. And that project was wrapping up essentially. And the future forecast for my team was not good. And I could look into the future and say, I was going to have to lay off 20, all 20 of that staff in the next 12 months because of the economic climate had changed markedly and we just had no work. We were running a consultancy and no work, no staff. I didn't feel like laying off my entire team over the course of the year, essentially. I, laid off, I had to lay off three already under corporate direction and I was looking for a change. So I thought, no time like the present. And I sort of seized that as the leverage to go overseas. I was living in Perth, Australia, which at the time was the only English-speaking country in the top 10 most expensive countries in the world. Um, we were about 10 places above London and New York, and my money wasn't going to go very far there. So I took the leap, went to Thailand, and set up a remote business starting from Thailand. What was that experience like? Because you're going from essentially, you know, yes, you were working remotely. Yes, you're managing a team remotely, but you're still working for a corporation, a big company, to now all of a sudden jumping into doing this yourself, into sort of being self-employed. What was the biggest lessons that you learned through that transition? It was a couple of key lessons in that. And the first one was I was, a, I was doing project management. I had a team to do everything I needed to, essentially. And I was just the puppet master pulling the strings. Jumping into my own business, I was the guy doing all the work. And my biggest learning, and this took me a couple of years to, to work out, to be fair, I think you should always, starting a new business, always use some skills you already have. In my case, I should have been looking to employ staff straight away rather than doing all the work myself. So that really, that was a real, that was a real struggle for me um, and a real lesson I, I encourage others to take away. Like in my case, my, my skill was project management and that was the, the one skill I should have leveraged. The other thing I learned is that it's quite hard. Like when you're in the corporate office, you, you know, you get up, you put your suit on or whatever, whatever the uniform of the day is, go into the office. And if you're late, someone gives you a hard time. And when you're working by yourself, you're like, oh, I just, I'll just snooze the alarm a bit longer. I don't need to go and do that. I'll like go and have breakfast, see some friends. And getting a routine down was something for me that was, was a game changer. Yeah, I feel like that's something that a lot of people experience when they kind of, uh, and, and I oftentimes I tell people as well, is like, start the business, start whatever you want to do after your corporate life. Start it before you leave because the moment that you start traveling, you're going to have these like other attention suckers. You're going to have these other things that are going to be like, oh, well, instead of working this morning, you can go do this fun thing. How did you find that balance? Like, you know, like how were you able to establish that routine for yourself? What worked for me, I think, was co-working spaces and a gym. So, and also, you know, doing something routine for breakfast. So I stopped going out for breakfast in the morning and just had some food in the house because that was, that was what I was used to, you know, get up, go to the gym, come back, eat something and go straight to the, to the co-working space, which for me was the analog of the office. So that was kind of like, you know, I want to go to the, to the co-working space from this hour, then go you know, have lunch and then go home roughly at this hour. That was like very roughly, that sort of provided some structure to the day. And the mere fact of going from where I was living to the co-working space, which was all of a five minute scooter ride or, or a 10 minute walk, that was enough to sort of, you know, set the day up. I think that goes back to like, um, 
I think it's Atomic Habits. Uh, I, I could be wrong about this, but uh, in that book, they write about kind of like setting up that trigger, right? And kind of having like yeah. those like habit stacks where you have, you just need to figure out that first habit that then leads into the second and the third and the fourth. And if you sort of like figure out what that leading habit is, like you said, like, you know, going to the gym and then having breakfast at home, it almost kind of like walks into the other things. And I think one of the tough things is, for a lot of people who are just getting started, they expect to be able to figure this out right away. And like, I know when I get to a new city, it's going to take me like two weeks at minimum to kind of figure out that routine to sort of fall into place and understand, okay, like what is the best way to do this in this location? And that's why I think, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this. That's why I don't think that it's very sustainable to be moving like every week or every two weeks. It's it's fine if you're working for someone, like if you have a remote job, but if you're trying to build something yourself and sort of like have this big boulder that you have to push up the hill, you, I think you need to spend more time in a location. What do you think? I'm entirely in agreement with that. I think if you're trying to travel and go to a new city and, you know, and start a new business, there's only so much mental bandwidth that each of us has at any given time. And if you're spending a little bit of that on travel and, and working at what's safe to eat and where to go and do X, Y, Z and how to meet new people, that takes up a lot of your time. And it's, it's almost impossible then to focus on growing a business. So my thing is, yeah, I agree. For me, what worked for me was about three months in each place. Um, now I'm looking at spending a longer time in each place, but a week is too crazy. Unless, you, as you said, you already have a job that you know how to do. In that case, you know, you'll probably have certain hours you need to work and then you can just you can still get a routine in place. And that might be going to a cafe on the first day. Going, I need to find out where the cafe is. I need to find out somewhere to eat dinner. I need to find a supermarket and maybe a gym or a sports club, whatever you're into. And then you have a list of three or four things you need to do in each new city and jump into that. And then you can jump back into your work routine. Yeah. Or if you have like an established business, right? Like if, if you've already built a business, it's already chugging along nicely and you just kind of have to put in the the regular amount of work every single day that's fine as well but i think i think there's this like this idea of okay you hate your job quit the job and then just start traveling and figure it out on the road and that can work but it's you're essentially creating two really difficult things right you're you're adding trying to build a business on the one hand and then you're also trying to figure out how to like live this new location independent lifestyle and both of those things are hard enough to figure out on their own, but now you have to figure out both together. So I think you're just kind of like setting yourself up for failure and it can be really, really tough. So either slowing down and moving very, very slowly, like you said, three months. Um, my wife and I are in a very similar schedule, even though right now we're in Mexico for six months, which has been great. Um, or like waiting to leave until you've actually established your business. Um, so I think that those are, uh, I totally agree with you. It's like, you know, really slowing down is, is important. But let's shift here a little bit and talk about making remote work work, right? Because uh, ever since COVID, uh, remote work has become a very popular topic. It's something that a lot of companies are having to kind of figure out for their own. And one of the really big topics in that that I want to start with is asynchronous work, right? Is figuring out how do we make our remote team work across time zones? Uh, because I think that's really important in order to have a sustainable remote team. What are your views on, as on asynchronous teams, asynchronous communication? Like what have been some of the, what are some of the things that you work with clients in order to make asynchronous work 
work for their teams? So I'm all about asynchronous um, teamwork, but I also believe there's a lot of what I want to call face-to-face -face time required on a, on a regular basis. And to me, that's, that's Zoom calls or whatever it might be. So first thing I'm going to say is that for a team, you want some time overlap between the founder or, or the boss and the team across the world. Unless you're a big team. If you're a big team, you can go outside of that boundary. So what I'll suggest for, for starting off a remote team is actually is focusing on the goal, obviously, first, first of all. But it's setting up the structure at the front. And so if there is no real time over, overlap at the front, it's a case of getting people together on the Zoom call, having good discussion, working out what drives a team, um, what different people want. Some people are great and they prefer written communication. Some people prefer like a phone call or a Zoom call. And each team member will be different. And it's a case of working out what that is. So for example, um, you know, a daily stand-up might be on Slack. And everyone sort of reaches in. Some people might prefer to have like a two-minute you know, a two-line sort of, I'm doing this today. Um, what can work well for others is actually like a Loom video or a quick voice message or a video message. So it's working out what works for that. And by way of example, when I ran a team in the Philippines at one stage, we had trouble, work, me and my team in Australia had trouble working out how to manage that team in the Philippines. And in the end, we worked out, they love to be told what to do. So in the end, we, we would be very clear with email and we used email. Said, this is what we, this is the work we want done. These are the changes we've made. This is the time frame, and this is how much budget you have. And things came back every time reliably. But for that particular team, phone calls did not work. There was a culture difference. There was a communication style difference. And we just didn't understand each other on the phone. But when it came down to actually the work, it worked well to, to actually write down and have written down. I was going to say, that just touched briefly on daily stand-up. So all about daily communication for a team. And just basically, it's a check-in process. And I said, that can be on Slack. It can be on Zoom. It can be on email it depends once again on how big the team is how many teams are talking together and um, it's really just a case of reminding each other that when we're on this together even though we're in different countries different cities or whatever it is we're working on the same project and it's just letting other people know what you're working on and that can help you also set you up for the day as a remote worker you mentioned kind of like figuring out how people in your team prefer to work and how they prefer to communicate um in, in order to understand how to structure these things how can people do that? Like, because I, I think that that is a very good tip. I think that definitely building your structure, building your communication around how your team and the people in your team like to communicate, how they like to have information presented to them is very, very important. I think most people would agree with that. But how do we actually figure that out? Because I think that's really tough because you may have somebody on, on your team that likes to have things presented in a written format. Someone else might like to see it in video, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you suggest that either entrepreneurs with small teams listening to this or people who are leading you know, larger teams perhaps, how can they figure this out? To start with, I'd say, as a, particularly as a smaller business owner or an entrepreneur, ask the person. When you're going through the initial onboarding process, ask someone if they have any preferences. And sometimes that will come out and sometimes it won't. If it doesn't come out then, it's a case of working it out in the first couple of weeks. Try a few different things. You know, for example, email or message someone and the speed of the response, the nature of the response will give you a few clues. And then try a voice message, a video message, a direct call, a scheduled meeting. And just try a few different things a couple of times each and to see what the response is like. You know, in terms of tasks, so provide someone a task on, on each of those formats and you, know, you can determine whether there's questions or whether there's delays um, and how much enthusiasm you get back, the sort of response you get back. And also 
the second thing is, is how the person responds to you. If you were to, for example, send someone a message on Slack and they leave your voice message back, then they're gonna, that's them saying this is my preferred methodology. You mentioned Zoom calls and that, you know, kind of like getting the team together, getting stand-up calls. Um, and then I think in theory, I agree with you, like that, that those are a very good thing to have. Like obviously jumping on a quick call with your team every single day or every week is a really great way to make sure you're in sync. But one of the things that I keep hearing from um, people who are working in companies right now, especially companies who have maybe never considered about doing things remotely and were just forced into doing it because of COVID, one of the things that I keep hearing from people is just spending an insane amount of time on Zoom. And they are just spending so much time on video calls and way less time actually like working. How do we make sure that we don't like just spend all of our day on Zoom? Like, How do we make sure that we don't get this like quote unquote Zoom creep where we're just in calls all the time? That's a very good question. Zoom fatigue is, is a, a totally relevant and annoying thing. But the first thing is with the, with the daily stand-ups, they can be either on Zoom or they can be even on Slack and just leaving, dropping a note, dropping a message into a particular forum or a particular channel. So they can help that Zoom fatigue. If you are doing a weekly call, which I encourage, or even a daily call with a team, it's time limits. That's the big one. So if you've got five people on a call or more, it's very, that's, that's when it's most important to be strict. Um, for a daily check-in, that might be two minutes each or three minutes each. If there's five people, that takes 15 minutes. It's very easy for someone to go, oh, how was your day? You know, blah, blah, blah. The weather is X, Y, Z, where we are. You know, how's your, how's your children sort of style? And that's where the entrepreneur or the business owner is in charge of saying, right, or the team manager. They say, this is, this is strict. We're on this call for this reason. Here's the guidelines. Every week, we're going to meet. At this time, we're going to talk for two minutes each a minute to ask questions perhaps, and then it's the next person. So it's managing that. For, for a new company, a new remote environment, I should say, that's quite a different story. And for me, it can be actually useful to have, for example, someone just sitting on, on, the, on the computer working with Zoom open. So someone can ask and just look at them and just ask them a quick question. This is, and this is an interim measure. But a lot of people who, for example, who leave the office and the rest of the office is on Zoom, uh, sorry, is, is in the office still, then they're going, oh, this person's, they're in Mexico, they're not working, they're at the beach, they're doing, you know, they're having tacos all the time, which is probably not true. And it can be worth having a, a spare computer, for example, in an office environment, particularly if there's only one person away with a video a channel open at all times. So someone can walk past the office and see the remote person sitting at their computer tapping away. So... I, I agree that that is a way to sort of uh, simulate being an office in terms of like when you have a question, you can immediately ask that person because we're all on a call together. But I feel like one of the things that comes with remote work that we're trying to sort of change in the way that company culture exists, the way that it works, is that it's not about how much time you spend working. It's about the value that you're creating, right? Like these conversations sort of happening in sync. It's It doesn't matter like how many hours I spend working. It's just, did I get my work done? And I feel like having a call on constantly enables old management styles where if you're not, if there's no butts in the seats, you're not getting paid, you're not working, right? So how would you, like, what would you say about that? Because like my my worry here, if I were to suggest, if we were suggesting to people to have like an open video channel all the time is managers would just be looking for butts in the seats for eight hours instead of actually transitioning to a more sustainable working 
world where it's about the value that you create. So what do you, uh, I, I just kind of want to push back on that and hear what you think about that. This goes back to our conversation earlier in terms of going to a new city and trying to do too many things at once and instead focusing on one thing. And for a, a new remote person who's the only, perhaps the only one or two in the office that are remote, the reason I suggest the video call is that it's one step at a time. So in this mm-hmm. case, step one is get out of the office. And I'm 100% in agreement that it's all about the value of the work delivered, not the time it takes to do the work. And so for me, I'm suggesting this because it's an interim measure. And that might be for, say, two weeks for one of a, a better um, number. And it, it's just a, it's one step. So one step is I'm out of the office. But if you want to talk to me, you can swing past my old desk or some random spot where there's a computer with my screen on it. And I'm not always there. And step two is then is like not being at your computer all the time. It's like maybe away or maybe you, you turn the Zoom off for like an hour a day. And it's just, a, it's a, just a, a transition process. Gotcha. So would you then suggest to have almost like a, um, like a transition trajectory sort of where you'd say, hey, for the first uh, month, I'm going to be on a video, uh, on a Zoom call the, every, whenever I'm working so that you can see me there. Then after a month, I'm actually going to step away, but you'll, you'll be able to see when I'm online on Slack. And it's sort of like almost like uh, weed out uh, your, your, your physical presence sort of. Is that what you would suggest? Yes. For someone who's leaving the office to do remote work for the first time, that's 100% what I suggest. And perhaps not even for that long. But a transition plan that's, you know, in broad strokes is agreed to with the management team of your existing company, then that can work quite well. Go to another country. That's, that's the real thing. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the first, you know, the first week, on, if someone's moving, say, from the US to um, Europe, then it might even be worth working US hours for the first week to say, look, I'm here. I mean, I know this is, this is a big change. And say, one step at a time, the first, perhaps the first two weeks, maybe I'm going to be on this call. And then the second week, I'm going to be around and you can leave, you know, I'll be working the same hours. You can contact me with whatever channel you want during that time, but I won't be on video. And then after that, you say, look, I'm going to be working different hours and you need to, you know, these are the hours will overlap. And in the future, it can be a Slack or, your, you know, some sort of messaging channel, team viewer, whatever whatever it is, the transition plans for the win. Yeah. I had a friend who, uh, he is an employee, uh, within a company that's not actually remote, but he sort of pitched them and sold them on this, you know, idea of him being fully remote and location dependent. And the company agreed to it, which is really, really great to hear that the company was forward thinking in that. But I liked the way that they did it in which, He kind of, it's exactly what we're talking about, where the first stage he was working US hours no matter where he was, and he had to have at least like, I don't remember what it was, like three hours of overlap with their home office. And then after a certain number of months, they actually reduced that to just one hour overlap. And then now, for example, I believe they don't have to have overlap at all because they kind of like built that muscle of working remotely. And I do think that that's a good idea, um, especially for companies that are transitioning into being remote. Um, or are trying to do this this hybrid work model, which I'd actually, this is a good segue into that because I want to hear your opinion on this, this hybrid first, right? Where if we have an office first culture where everyone's just expected to be in the office, right? That's on one hand. The other option is having remote first, where the entire company is built out with the idea of everyone in our company is remote and we do not have a home office. One of the things that I'm seeing a lot of companies uh, adopting nowadays is this like 
quote unquote hybrid model where it's some people are in the office, other people are remote, uh, and it's your choice. What do you think about that as the uh, the ethos of the company, right? Of being hybrid first, so to say, because one of the concerns with a lot of people who are uh, in the remote field, who are remote work leaders, is that it's sort of um, it, it's not very sustainable because the company itself, the way that it's structured is not for remote workers. The idea is if you have one remote worker, then the entire company structure, everything that you do needs to be set up for remote. You know, you can't kind of like have your foot in either camp. What do you think about that with uh, based on your experience and what you've seen in companies? That's a, it's an interesting one to answer. Actually, I'm all about hybrid work. I think it's, there's a lot of things to be gained there. If you have a remote work culture, you, it'll weed out certain people for the company. The remote remote first can be a bit of a you know a bit of self righteousness and saying oh you have to be traveling around the world otherwise you can't work for us. Whereas anything at hybrid work you can say this is cool you know you do what you want you can work from home you can work in the office if we have one or you can work in another country. So that's that's great and a lot of those things are, there's a lot of overlap between remote first and I think and the hybrid environment in the sense that there has to be all those systems in place to manage the remote workers in either case. So there is overlap. But having said that, some teams um, that I'm aware of, they will have, for example, an annual retreat or a biannual retreat where everyone gets together for a week or two weeks and they work in the same environment. And that often is not an office. It could be they, they've hired a conference facility or they've hired a, um, a, a co-working type space or they've just got a large venue where everyone can work together. And that's the sort of the face-to-face time you don't get. Um, other companies might have a head office in that particular place or a place where the, the founders live and then often the founders where the founders live becomes the hub for the company, the geographical hub. And yeah, hybrid working can work great in that environment. I think there's no, for me, there's no benefit in pushing a remote first culture. Um, for me, it's more about the remote friendliness, the remote, remote ability for want of a, a better term. Yeah. So like, I, like, I totally agree with you. Like, I don't think you need to be traveling all over the world. Like, obviously like not everybody wants that in my opinion, like, totally. or, or maybe you want that for a year or two and then like you, you stop wanting to do it. Right. Like that's totally normal. What I mean by that is more that if you have one remote employee, two remote employees, however many there are, you almost need to change the entire company structure in order to have those people there, right? Because otherwise you can't really continue doing things the same way if if you're in an office and then just have people working from home because it's, you know, the company's just not set up for that type of work. So as an example, you have Basecamp, right? So Basecamp, and I'm I haven't reviewed this recently. This may have changed, but at the time a few years ago, they had an office, quote unquote, in Chicago. But mm-hmm their rule was, hey, if you want to come in and work from the office, that's totally fine. But the company and everything that we do is set up for you to be remote, right? So uh, whether you're in the office or at home, we use this system, this structure. So that's when people say remote first. I think that's what they mean, where the company is first and foremost set up for remote. And you can do that remote work from wherever you want to, whether that's a co-working space at home or even an office that we may have for you. Um, so it's not necessarily like pushing people to, to like, to travel, if that makes sense. Yes. So I use remote friendly. I think we're talking about the same thing here. 
say the systems mm-hmm. need to be in place to enable remote work. And whether that is one person or whether that's 95% of the company is working remotely, the systems kind of need to be there and in place. And as you go back to before, you said before, was is the culture. And the hardest thing for an existing company to change, I think, is the culture. And it's the case of, you know, showing up at 8 o'clock in the morning and leaving at 5 o'clock at night and putting your hours and then going home and having a beer and doing whatever you want to after hours and transition that to a remote work environment. Oh, my team member today is in a different country, therefore I can't talk to him at 8 in the morning. He doesn't come online perhaps until 4 in the afternoon. So we need to work independently. We need to do a bit of more of a structured handover perhaps. And yes, those systems need to be in place. And this is where it's, I come back to the daily stand-ups. And even if this is just a message on Slack, this is what helps bind the team together. Like a team around the world, to me, in my experience, needs to be held together. Otherwise, people will drift off and there's no there's no buy-in to the company culture. So there has to be some sort of regular check-in process and also man- and, and communications with the founder or the entrepreneur to, as the glue to keep the team together in different countries. But absolutely, in, in terms of remote remote work and hybrid, yes. And Basecamp's example, that's a great one. You have an office. If you're a big company, you can have an office you can afford to. Other times, you might just base out of a co-working space, perhaps, or a, some sort of shared office, or maybe there's a booking system where, say, we've got five seats, first and best dressed, and if there's a whole bunch of workers in town, then we'll, we'll rent another venue out or a conference room or potentially something else. Yeah, and like I think it really depends on like uh, like the leadership of the company, right? Because if like, the, the company says like, hey, if you want to work remotely from home, that's totally fine. Like go on and do that. But then if the leadership is in the office every single day, you know, it's like you can say one thing, but your actions say something else. And even yeah. if this, even if your company is set up to work remotely, but you know, the leadership is constantly going to the office and not really like like living the remote life, like it kind of sends a different message. So I do think it's very important for the leadership to say like, hey, you know, we're remote friendly. If you want to be from home, that's totally fine. And we're going to set up an environment to help you be successful no matter where you work from. But I do want to sort of uh, quote unquote double click on this idea of culture in in a remote space. Because one of the things that we mentioned, you know, in terms of having these daily standups is to reduce chit chatter in order to make sure that we're not you know, Zoom creeping and, you know, a 10 minute call ends up being a 45 minute call. But one of the, the, you know, negatives of this is that we reduce this like water cooler chat, right? Which it more and more studies are showing is really important to boost company culture because you get to know the people that you work with. Uh, You're building some sort of camaraderie with your employees. And that's something that, you know, is lacking uh, a lot of times in a remote company uh, because you know we're reducing these calls we're not seeing each other face to face we don't have the beers after work like you said so what are some other ways I know that we've already touched on this a little bit but I really kind of want to talk a bit more about this how can we make sure that we're strategically building the culture in a remote team leadership in this case always always comes from the top so the leaders need to set the example first and foremost but in terms of building the culture and, and allowing social or the team, I guess the team glue, the social attributes, that requires a bit more thought. As you said, in the office, we can have a drink after work, we can go out for a coffee and have the water cooler chat. In the remote world, that can be, that um, needs to be a different methodology. And that, if you use Slack, for example, there can be a social channel, there can be a chit chat channel. Uh, pictures of your dogs could be encouraged, for example, your pets, um, or just a, a place where you can go and, and drop someone a message that people might check that you know, every hour or two. The other way is to have a virtual 
a virtual coffee, if you like, um, once a week. Mm-hmm. And this depends a little bit on time zones as well. If people are, have some time zone overlap, they can work. If there's different time zones, it's not going to work quite as well. But having some social ability, and I said that's, I had to get, I don't want to keep going back to Slack, but Slack is quite well set up for this. You have a social channel. And like maybe even encourage like the first day, encourage people to put up one photo of what they did in the weekend, perhaps, or as a, as a conversation starter, and then encourage people. Or maybe there's a thirty minute, you know, a thirty minute slot every couple of days where people are encouraged on work time just to get together and, and bandy around things. Once once the team has been built, and this is obviously the hard part is building the team. Once it's in place and people trust each other, then it's much easier than just to reach out and ask questions. I want to just come come back and touch on what we talked about with the founders or the the leadership team. The leadership team has to encourage that. So when I say that, I'm talking about the leadership team or the entrepreneur. They will reach out, you know, once once a week, once every couple of days, and, and ask their team something social. And this is obviously going to vary for each person. You know, how's how's progress with buying your new house going? How's you know how's the how's the baby? How's the how's the gym routine? How's you know whatever it is. So the entrepreneur, the uh, the onus is on them, or on the founder, to to build those relationships and encourage people to talk to each other. Maybe talking to one person. Oh, did you hear that this other team member in Argentina has had this major thing going on? That they're really excited about, you know, and just sort of encourage that that ad hoc. Yeah, I think this is where where and and why we're seeing this new rise of this new position of like head of remote, right? Where it's like almost like one part HR. One part, one part like project management, one part like, I don't know, uh, like product management, because you kind of need to have, it's almost like a full-time job, right? And somebody who's like a CEO or a, you know, a head of a company is like, hey, I don't have the time to manage this entire process. And I think that that's why we're seeing this rise of like the head of remote as a position in these companies, because it's a new process and somebody's got to manage that process. With HR, for example, that's, it's a morphing role. Like HR is a term I'm not a huge fan of, but there is a role. Like there is a role to manage people and to provide, you know, provide, make sure that people's needs are being met, whether they're in the office or whether they're, you know, 12 hours time difference away from you in a, in a small island or living on a boat. It doesn't matter. There's still, there's still basic human needs that as a company, you need to make sure those needs are being met so that the work can be done and done effectively. Yeah. You mentioned uh, another topic that I think is very um, sort of like hot at the moment, which are these like in, in-person meetings for remote teams, right? Like having some sort of workations where you bring either the entire team together, depending on how big the team is, or if you have like multiple, uh, you know, smaller teams, you know, bringing them together. Uh, and this is something that I'm a huge advocate for. I don't think that you can uh, replace in-person contact in any way. Uh, and, and, and I'm a very big fan at, of companies bringing their employees together. And I'm very excited to see more and more companies doing this. But I I do wonder, from your experience uh, working with companies and and doing similar things, what is the best way to spend that time, right? Like, do you bring your employees together and you spend that time working on new projects? Do you do some sort of like creative activities? Or do you spend the majority of that time building communication between the team, kind of doing more fun things and not really focusing on work? Because I'm seeing different companies like 
picking and choosing these and putting together their own versions of this? Like what would be your preferred version of this? Like more focused on work or more focused on kind of like building company culture, doing fun things together? Given that a company is based on on work and work output, my first preference is to base the in-person gatherings around work. So that, that forms the core. So people are already working together, they, or maybe they're working together, they're all working towards the same goal. In person, I think, continue that onwards. So have the people meet, have them work in the same time zone or the same, same physical location for a while, and then build fun things on top of that. So maybe, maybe perhaps the work days are a bit shorter, and then there's a fun thing every second day, or there's dinner every day that everyone goes out together, and obviously needs some free time as well. But don't do too much change. If it's just fun activities, it becomes a little bit like the team building of the 80s and people groan about it, they don't want to go there and you, and you lose a point. If you're, if you're flying people around the world as an entrepreneur, then you want them to, to gain the most value. So the team building happens, in my mind, by default. You know, you structure it so mm-hmm. that everyone's in the same place, working together and you facilitate the communications. So larger rooms, um, you know, regular social get-togetherings, maybe, you know, maybe put in free coffees um, in the same place and maybe, you know, maybe there's a coffee exploration tour of the city. Maybe there's a, um, you know, a food tour that every day you go to a restaurant or have, have someone come in and cook a meal based on each person's country that they've been working in or each person's nationality. So but it's more of a more of an organic process rather than a, than a structured, let's have fun and get to know each other. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. And I've seen, and I think it really depends on the company as well um, and what like the established culture already is. Like I know companies, like I said, who like, for example, really focus on, on having fun at these, you know, at their, at their retreats. I know some people who do like really strategic, creative thinking around uh, the work or new projects that are coming up. So I think kind of like, like we talked about in the beginning is really testing and seeing what works and what doesn't work is is very likely the right choice for companies. But sort of in wrapping up, I do want to talk about one more topic that we haven't really discussed when it comes down to remote work, and that's procedures, right? And kind of creating these SOPs. Because especially when you're working asynchronously and maybe you have different time zones, you can't walk up to somebody's you know office and be like, hey, how do you do this, right? You kind of need to have some sort of procedures in place and keep track of them to make sure that you know how things are done, uh, even if the person who's in charge of that isn't there. What are your tips and suggestions for companies to build uh, like an index of standard operating procedures like this? Like what makes an SOP successful? What makes it something that people go back to and use over and over again? Because I'm sure we've all had this experience where we create SOPs in a company or in a team and then nobody looks at them, right? So how do we make sure that we have an an index of SOPs that are not just helpful, but also uh, usable and something that people keep reaching for over and over again? Very happy, Miko, you asked this question. I love SOPs and I think they're, they're superbly important for, for any company of any size. Your, what you raised about people not looking at them, that's, that's, what, that's a typically a big company failing. Yeah, there's all these complicated procedures and they're too complicated, they're too hard to find. So first and foremost, with procedures or SOPs, my first and foremost suggestion is use your existing system. If you're using Google Drive, put the SOPs in Google Drive. If you're using a knowledge management system or a wiki, Put them there. If you, if you, if you're a Slack-based team, put them in Slack. 
have had the reference where people already live, where they're already already going and looking for information. Second thing is keep them simple, keep them short, and keep them at the lowest possible number. So me, for me personally, I prefer SOPs um, two to three pages. There's three or four lines at the top with update dates, who's responsible. Every SOP needs an owner. They're the ones who are responsible for updating it. And start small. Like if you are a company that hasn't had SOPs before, start with three or four. Start with, and start with something you're doing already. A common failing I see is that people are trying to improve processes while they're documenting the process. As I recommend, document the existing process. Even if it's flawed, document the process first, get some agreement, and then say, here's an obvious place for improvement. We're going to change this. And put a sponsor or a champion or an owner in place for each of those. And that owner or the champion, they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that SOP is done. And this builds into the broader delegation system. So if you're a starting out entrepreneur, then that's, that's just, this is the entrepreneur's job to make sure it's run. And this is, something, you know, depending on the procedure, starting off asking people every day, oh, how's it going? You know, or every week, an exception report, with any times this procedure wasn't followed, is there a gaping hole? But just keep it simple, keep it low, low key as well, and have everything in place. And this SOPs can be personalized. The company culture, if the company culture is fun, laid back, then the SOP should reflect that as well. If it's very serious, button-down corporate, then SAP is going to reflect that. Um, but yeah, keep them short. If it's too, too much of a procedure, break it out. Have multiple procedures. Have links, obviously. Um, get, make it searchable or if you want, put in you know proper directory structure. And the final tip is have, have a list. Have a list of SAPs with like a, a one-liner. And whether that's in a separate document, it can be as basic as a Google, a Google Doc with links. It can be a more you know, more professional type knowledge management wiki, just so people, people should be able to scan down and look down and go, okay, I want to talk, I want to work out how to do X, you know, there's a new marketing channel we're going to explore. What, what are our marketing procedures? Oh, here's the, here's the marketing group. Um, here's the, here's a typical procedure for a new Facebook campaign, for example. Yeah. This is something that like, for example, when I did this for the first time, um, working for an agency, we did exactly what you were saying not to do, which was like, okay, like, what are the 100 procedures that we're going to put in this? And like, we made them super complex and they had like videos and like gifts showing how to do things. And, and some of those were really helpful, but I remember there was definitely this feeling of like overwhelm and there being too much. And we tried to like, the other thing that I noticed is like, we tried to like over explain uh, instead of just sort of like creating steps where we knew people were going to run into an issue where it's like, Hey, let people figure it out. And like, don't overcomplicate them. Like, don't say like, move your mouse to the right hand corner and click on this. Like people can figure it out, but just kind of like present a helping hand when you know they're going to need it. That's like what an SOP does when done well. Right. Is it kind of like it knows where you're going to fall, where you're going to run into an issue. And that's when it helps you out. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a very important point is write the SOP for the audience. If your SOP is, is the C-suite, then it's very high level language and very high level. If you're writing something for a VA, um, uploading something to a blog, it can be much more detailed. Mm-hmm. Yes, but much, yeah, <laughs> for the audience, you know, say, you don't need to say save a new Google document by, you know, pressing control S, you know, say put the Google, create a Google doc, save it to this directory perhaps is the most detail you might need to do for that. But I want to touch as well, you, you mentioned um, video clips and GIFs. That's a perfect way as well. If you, if you, 
if the um, owner of the SOP or the team is perhaps a creative team, they might be in person. They might be they might prefer video type structures. So you can do a Loom video or a, I mean, a GIF is probably overkill, perhaps, but like a, a a quick session showing people what to do. You know, either tell someone what to do on a document, or you can show them what to do on a video, or you can do both. The one thing I would say on this, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is like the the one issue with videos is that it's not as indexable, right? Where like if it's written out. Uh, for example, if you use something like Notion, which I, I really love for this use case for building like uh, SOP uh, indexes, you can just type in like a keyword and find where it's listed. But if it's a video, we can't necessarily do that. So we can't find the instances of that keyword or that uh, task or issue or whatever it may be where those occur in a standard operating procedure. What do you What do you think about that? I agree entirely with that. It, it is harder. So video, you need to be a little bit careful in terms of, and if you're using Notion, you can you can do a little um, a little index beside it. So just put some keywords in there. Um, mm. Keywords in the title, if you're saving a Google document, oh, sorry, a Loom video in a, in a Google Drive, put a few keywords in the title. But you need a little bit, yeah, a little bit more structure for videos. So maybe batching videos by marketing, uh, by um, department, uh, perhaps marketing, or batching them by type of videos. If you only have... 30 procedures, it doesn't matter that much. And if the mm. videos are short, and obviously videos need to be like SOPs, they have to be short. Like five minutes is too long. Um, right. Three minutes and break them out into little mini videos. But yeah, this, as you said, there's some, there's some thought needs to go into videos a little bit more. Do the video ad hoc and then go, okay, what am I doing here? What have, what have I tried to achieve? And just put those words in the title or as a reference document or in the even in the, in the linking document in the master list, you put down a few keywords there so it's searchable. Nobody's watching a 15-minute video to figure out how to solve a one-minute uh, issue, right? So I, I totally agree with that. Keep them short. Keep them to the point. Well, Andrew, man, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've learned a lot uh, myself, and and you know I'm very happy to have gotten your opinion uh, on a lot of these topics that are very, very important in business right now. But um, I know you do this professionally. I know that you help out companies exactly with how to do what we've talked about right now. Uh, so let people know, anybody who's listening who may be interested in your services, who are you looking for as a client and uh, where can they find out more about you, uh, about your story, your business, and uh, the services that you offer? Clients I'd love to see. If there's any listeners who want to reach out to me, feel free to do so on my website, andrewventured.com. If you are a business owner or an entrepreneur who has somewhere around six staff, 10 staff, and you want to scale up, you aren't quite sure how, you maybe have some, some concerns about delegating either control or financial authority to people, reach out to me. I love to help people in their zone, help them grow, uh, whether it's agencies, e-com business, or something else. I'm the guy. Operations, I love operations, I love systems. Not everybody does. And yeah, I'm here to help. I'd love to hear from, from some of the listeners. Well, perfect, Andrew. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to have all of the links that you mentioned uh, in the show notes. So uh, folks listening, don't feel like you need to remember those. Just head on over to the show notes uh, and you can check them out there. Andrew, thank you so much, man. Uh, and enjoy New Zealand. Okay, thank you very much for having me. And I, I look forward to uh, having this chat again in the future.